I am the bread that came down from heaven. Those were Jesus' words. When God delivered the Jews out of Egypt, he brought them into a 40-year period of walking through a desolate place, a wilderness, outside the comforts and luxuries that you might find in the city. While they were slaves in Egypt, life was hard. They were treated poorly. They were abused. It wasn't great, but it was certain. It was consistent. It was simple. And much more, in Egypt, there was food. However miserable the Jewish people may have been in Egypt, they were miserable in a prosperous land. At times, the Jews would talk about how they missed the meat pots back in Egypt, which were literally pots full of meat. And they talked about how there was always plenty of bread. At least in Egypt, there was food to eat. The wilderness is a place of uncertainty. In the wilderness, you don't know where you're going to find your next meal. You don't know where you'll find it or even if you will. And that's exactly where God brought the Jews when they passed through the Red Sea. He brought them out of slavery and into the freedom of the wilderness. Many of the Jews became upset. We hear all through the Torah of their never-ending groaning and complaining. Many of them felt like it would have been better never to have been saved at all. Compared to their previous life, it seemed like being saved from Egypt was kind of a raw deal. Yes, they were free, but at what cost? What they failed to understand was that the point of being brought into the wilderness wasn't just to stay there. The wilderness wasn't an end in itself. It was a path, a road, a means to an end. In his first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 10, Paul says that the Red Sea is a type of baptism. He writes, Our fathers were all under a cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Just as God brought the Israelites safely through the Red Sea, so did He bring each of you safely through the dangerous waters of baptism. But your baptism wasn't the end of God's work in your life. It marks a beginning. It puts you on a road, a path, a journey. In your baptism, God delivered you out of slavery into a life of freedom. But let's be honest, it doesn't always feel that way. There are many times that in our life of freedom, the freedom of being a Christian feels more like a burden. There are times in our lives when it feels like it would just be easier, simpler, nicer, more convenient, or at least more pleasant to not be a Christian. You don't have any of the social awkwardness that comes about when you're in mixed company. When you say things like, oh, well, I'm not so sure all religions are the same. Or, no, I'm afraid I can't go there with you. Not for that. Or, I won't be able to make it to the game this week. I'll be at church. This is because, as Paul wrote to the Roman church, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus 
were baptized into his death? Death is not light. It is not pleasant. It is not fun. It is not nice. It's not convenient. And nothing disrupts life more than death. But that's exactly the beginning of Christian freedom. Death. That's the gospel. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died, and so now we do too. This is why Baptists always want to dunk you under the water. It's baptism by immersion because it symbolizes that in baptism, you're going down into the watery grave of the sea. You're being joined to Christ in His death on the cross. And it's painful. And it's uncomfortable. And it's frustrating. At times, you can almost literally feel the water rising over your head. And through it, a whole other way of life is being washed away in a flood. But the dying is never an end in itself. The suffering isn't pointless. In fact, the gospel is the only thing that can make suffering meaningful. Because it gives suffering a point, a purpose, an end game, a justification. You don't believe the gospel? Fine. Your life is suffering and for no reason. But the Christian knows better. They know that there's no cross without a resurrection. Our creed doesn't end with, for our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. We keep talking after that. We immediately say, on the third day he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. If you take that away, there is no Gospel. Baptism is not only into Christ's death. Paul says in Romans 6, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that, for the purpose that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul keeps going. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, then we will certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And he goes on again. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. And once you're set free, once you're brought out of slavery, once God brings you through the waters of death, He brings you through to the other side. And then He begins you on your journey to the promised land. But what promised land? When God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, He did it to begin their journey to a land of plenty, a land full of milk and honey, a land that He had promised them to their ancestor Abraham. And because God cannot lie, He wouldn't stop until they got there. He wouldn't leave them in their weakness and simply say, go. He brought them there. Kicking and screaming at times, but He brought them there. And it took a while. It took 40 years. I appreciate that. I've always had a sense that drives my wife insane that I'm going to die shortly after 60. That's about as much as I've gotten me. (laughs) A friend of mine says that my own life is a miracle of modern medicine. I just don't have the constitution to go on much longer. So 40 years, roughly 20 years up to conversion, that seems like that maps it out. Many of you are blessed with many more years. And I'm thankful for that. 
But this is the context for our reading today in Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy was given just as the people of Israel were about to enter the promised land. And in our passage for today, Moses is reflecting on the 40 years of wandering through the wilderness that Israel endured. He explains that their misery and suffering as they walked as free men was on their way to a promised land with a purpose. And the purpose was at least threefold. There were three reasons for their suffering in the wilderness. Verse 2, and this is from page 152 in your pew Bible. Verse 2 says that God was testing them to see if their hearts were pure. This is one way we should think about our own times of trial and tribulation. As just that, trials. Our conscience is on trial to see if our faith is true. Verses 2 and verse 3 say that another point, to the diffi- I'm sorry, another point of the difficulties was that it caused the people to become humble. It was a humbling process. The difficulty that God put the people of Israel through was a type of discipline where he was trying to teach them to be utterly dependent on God, to teach them that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word of the Father. And the third purpose is the most obvious purpose. The reason that God brought them through 40 years of suffering in the wilderness. The final verses of the passage explain that the big picture, the point of the struggle, this most obvious one, is that he wanted to bring them to the promised land. And that's how you got there. And the land that he calls the promised land, he calls it a good land. A land of brooks, of water. A land of wheat, barley, Vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive trees, honey, a land in which you will lack nothing. He says, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. The painful, difficult march to the promised land had a point. The point of the testing, the point of the discipline, the point of the humbling, it was all for a purpose. It was so God could bless them greatly. But what kind of blessing? Own a house? Have two, three kids? A couple cars? The type of blessing that God is talking about here is exactly the blessing we read about in our psalm today. The blessing of God is that he wants us to taste and see that the Lord is good. God wants to become our greatest happiness our infinite joy, our endless delight, the fullness of our desires. And he's going to bring us to our knees if that's what it takes. The nature of the Christian walk, though, isn't just baptism followed by years of misery until you die and nothing in between until you get resurrected. God didn't bring the Israelites through the Red Sea and then leave them and say, see in the promised land, hope you make it. No, God is gracious. Not only does he deliver us out of sin and death, but then he picks us up and he carries us the whole way there to the other side of the Jordan River into the promised land. And much more, he feeds us. In the promised land, Moses talked about how it will be a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, an infinite bread, a bread that never runs out, an eternal bread. But God doesn't leave them breadless until they get there. He feeds them all along the way. 
with a special type of bread-like substance that the Jews called manna, which, if you translate it, means, what is it? That's what manna means. What's this? Archaeologists and biblical scholars have some really interesting theories about what exactly manna was, but it more or less functioned like bread. Nutrient-filled, whitish, yellowish substance that sustained them as they walked through the wilderness. They weren't feasting on it, but they were able to eat enough to keep from starving. It was enough. Dayenu. And through it, God showed his grace and his goodwill toward his people by giving them a token of the bounty that lay ahead of them. If only they would learn to trust him and keep his commandments. This manna, this heavenly bread, this bread from heaven is what Jesus is referring to in our gospel reading today. When Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus is saying that he is manna. His body is bread from heaven. And as we lay between two poles, baptism and the final resurrection, Jesus makes his body manna, food for our souls to carry us and sustain us by his grace as we walk through the wilderness of pain and suffering, through endless trials and tribulations, until we come with him into the promised land of our salvation the bountiful gift of God, where we will forever taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus says that the bread that God gave the Jews in the wilderness was limited. It was a shadow of the much greater bread to come. It was like the bread of the promised land in that it could provide some nutrition, but eventually, many people still died in the wilderness, never quite making it to the blessed land of promise. He says that the bread he offers is much greater than the manna of the wilderness. However good the manna was, it was still a corruptible bread. It was a bread with an expiration date. It was a bread that never quite escaped the reign of sin and death. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This is bread infused with eternal life. Bread that can only be partaken of by faith. Bread from heaven. He says this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. This is incorruptible bread. This is bread that never goes bad, bread that never expires, bread that never dies. He says if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And Jesus said that he provides this bread as a gift for his people. Now how is this possible? How can bread be spiritual food? How can bread contain eternal life? Jesus says that, The bread that he will give for the life of the world is his flesh. The bread that Jesus offers gives eternal life because the bread that Jesus offers is his very own body and blood, his own flesh. Remember, this is John's gospel. And John's gospel begins with the famous, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And as John continues, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, the eternal Word of God, took on human flesh for our salvation. He took on flesh, joining His divine nature and His human nature and our human nature so that He could return that eternal flesh back to us so that if we will become a people of faith, we can partake of eternal life through His heavenly body. So what do you do with that? How do you respond to that? John's Gospel tells us 
that Jesus told them that he was bread from heaven, and the Jews grumbled. Is that the right response, grumbling? The Jews grumbled, John writes, because Jesus said that he was bred from heaven. They said, from heaven? Isn't this just Joseph and Mary's boy? For them, Jesus was all too human, corruptible, merely natural, like manna that fed them in the wilderness. This is the opposite of faith. And this grumbling, cynical attitude is what kept them from eternal life. This is what kept them from entering promised land. So then what does faith look like? How do you respond to Jesus here? I would look back at the passage in Deuteronomy. You can respond in at least three ways. Number one, persevere in belief through trials of faith. Number two, humbly receive the grace of God in Christ. That's the point. And finally, trust that the bread you eat, the divine flesh of Christ, is given for you. Take it in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving, knowing that now you receive a foretaste of the eternal life to come. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now please stand for the creed.